Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. Today, my name is Niall, and today we will be looking at Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley and Ozymandias by Horace Smith. So yeah, we're doing something a bit different. A couple of reasons why. I'll tell you the first reason. first reason is I've just not been researching. I've had a very busy week. And normally I, I at least spend a couple of days researching this just to make sure I've got all the facts and all my notes. I've got nothing. I've got nothing today. So I'm going to be winging it quite a lot on this one. So apologies if it does not meet the standards. I hope I just keep you entertained and keep you engaged <laughs> while you're doing whatever you do while you listen to this. So I am going to be looking at two poems and I'm going to be comparing them. My main reason for doing this, so apart from that, um, is also, so when I thought, okay, I haven't really prepared for this, what should I do? I know I'll get one of my poems that I can recite backwards and talk about for an hour, which is Ozymandias by Shelley, because Shelley's one of my favourite, probably my favourite of the romantic poets, um, him or Blake, but I think I'm still into Shelley, whereas I'm not as into Blake these days, although we will be looking at Blake in a later podcast. And so Ozymandias is just one of those sonnets that I've often held up as, a, in its own way, a perfect sonnet. Just a brilliant sonnet that, that that doesn't need any real introduction. You know, we don't... A lot of people know this sonnet. And it already has its reputation. So, but, but at the same time, um, when I have taught this sonnet beforehand, I've always found it more interesting to, yes, have a look at this sonnet by Shelley, but to also look at this other sonnet by Horace Smith called Ozymandias. Now, both, both, of, both of the poems actually had different names in, uh, in previous sort of incarnations when they've been published. So um, let me just find it now. So I think when, well, maybe I should talk about the, the story behind the poems first before um, I talk about their publication history and a little bit about the poets. Now, we're definitely going to move on to, to to Shelley. I might just have a good old bash at the Mask of Anarchy in a future episode. Shelley doesn't need that much introduction because Shelley is one of the big the big romantic poets. We've spoken about the romantic era beforehand when we looked at Wordsworth. And um, Shelley was very much, I kind of, um, so the Romantic era is an era where we have a few concerns. We have the rise of industrialization. We have the opposition to slavery and many sort of issues of human rights coming to the fore. Um, industrialization hasn't kind of quite reached the the the, the peaks of of victorian times but we're definitely on on the way so there's a dread about the machine the mechanization of society there's also the sort of the 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 the, the dimming i guess of religion as a as a main barometer in the world as well you know more doubting of religion and um and the scientific accounts that sort of have come to sort of take the place or to challenge religion as well so a lot of these sentiments sort of foreground romanticism but romanticism of course also comes from this idea of the the individual and the emotional grounding of the individual and the mirror of that emotional grounding of the individual with nature and how nature um there's the famous phrase by keats um in in truth beauty in beauty truth in truth beauty and I think that sums up a lot of the idea, even though um, another romantic, Lord Byron, said how nature is red in tooth and claw. But they weren't necessarily contradicting each other. 
um him you know when what, what it just begs the question as to what truth is and what beauty is uh, before we equate them with each other so back to Shelley quickly because I don't want to give a bit of biographical background of of Shelley and then an even slimmer bit of biographical background on Horace Smith. Shelley, a, a great outsider again. There's a book I read by a guy called Colin Wilson when I was a young man, and it's very much a young man's book, um, The Outsider. And The Outsider, sort of, it was a little thesis that that Wilson himself wrote as a young man, looking at outsider figures in literature, and so he came up with his own little sort of triad of outsiders. And he, all of his, this triad of outsiders can also be seen in The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Um, but this triad of outsiders is that you get the emotional outsider, the one who kind of feels emotionally out of place in the world, or someone who's almost childlike. So if you do know your Dostoevsky, this would be Alyosha, the youngest um, Karamazov brother. But it could also be the character of Prince Mishkin in The Idiot um, by, by the same author. So the emotional outsider is someone who, who is sort of emotionally out of sync with the world. And, and when we and you could say the romantic that we think of with the remote with, with the emotional outsider would be Keats. Keats, especially like when you, even though he was very much an intellectual outsider as well, but I think he, we characterize him as the emotional outsider. He is the guy that, um, that, that sort of feels too much for this world. I mean, we think of, um, sort of Ode to Melancholy and Ode to a Nightingale, but really sum up those feelings that he has. Then we move on to Byron, let's say. And Byron is, is like, um, I can't remember the name of the Karamazov brother. Is it Dimitri? Dimitri. He's like the one who's always getting, he's the ex-soldier. He's always getting into fights and stuff like that. He's got a hot temper and, and the ladies love him and he loves the ladies. So he's the physical outsider. Um, he's the one who's lost in sort of this hedonistic, you could say, sort of relationship with the world, but he's this full-blooded being. And that's what, you know, that's what makes him a physical outsider. Um, so who else who else i'm trying to think of other figures like t.e lawrence is seen i think colin wilson takes t.e lawrence as a physical outsider this guy who has to go and fight in afghanistan or wherever um there's another guy called arthur cravan who is the husband of the modernist poet mina loy and arthur cravan i think you could see as a, as a physical outsider as well um I'll tell you what makes Arthur Cravan a physical outsider and a great hero of mine is that um, he had a boxing fight with the heavyweight champion at the time who might have been Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was a tough guy. He turned up for the fight drunk. So he had a, a sort of an unlicensed boxing match with Jack Johnson and turned up for the fight drunk. Then he went off on a boat and vanished. So that's um, Arthur Cravan. But you get the idea. That's a that's a physical outsider, and so I think in in that sense we characterise. If we're going by this triad, the final kind of outsider is the intellectual outsider. So the intellectual outsider in the brothers Karamazov is Ivan Karamazov, who's notably a, a, who begins with a an argument at the beginning of a novel with the elder Zosima, this religious figure. Um, about God, about how, how he has to doubt God being good because of the suffering of children, because of the suffering of the innocents. A, a good God cannot let the innocents suffer. Now, so that's that's him as the intellectual outsider, sort of rebelling against religion. And one of the characteristics, I think, of, of Shelley is his rebellion against religion, religious power and state power as well. So he was a politically minded man. I guess the, his, the, my idea of him as the intellectual outsider certainly comes from him being kicked out of um, Oxford. I think it was Oxford. I'm pretty sure it was Oxford. It might have been Cambridge. I don't know which one they went to because you know what? They're all the bloody same to me. But 
he, he got kicked out of one of them for writing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. I think it was anonymous, but he got found out anyway, and they, and they booted him out. So that's his sort of outsider status. I think he, he went to Eton as well. So in, in one sense, he's definitely not an outsider. But uh, within that sense, he is an outsider. He was a bit of an outsider in Eton as well. Where he was bullied. Um, he wouldn't sort of serve um his he, he wouldn't serve his older the older pupils as as some were required to do and he also got into trouble for blowing up a tree um so there we go bit of an outsider um he was married to um mary uh mary shelley who's i think it's mary wolf wolstoncraft was her, her maiden name and her father himself was a great sort of reformer and rebellious figure so so there's a real pedigree for rebellion there. And I think rebellion, maybe he was the sort of Blakean outsider in that sense, maybe Shelley. He seems to follow more from the tradition of Blake than the others. Of course, the other big romantic poets, if we're going by the sort of big, I don't know. Then there's Coleridge as well, isn't there? Who's just off his face all the time. But um, the, the, we have, we have um, Wordsworth. And I think we, we spoke enough about Wordsworth already. But Wordsworth, you could say, just wasn't an outsider. He was that guy who uh, who lived by the maximum. If you don't, if you're if if you're not a rebel in your twenties or when you're a young person, then you haven't got heart. And if you're not part of the system by the time you're thirty, you haven't got a mind. I don't agree with that myself, but maybe maybe Wordsworth agreed with it. And so we get back to Shelley. Um, also died young, died tragically as well. Went off um, uh, went off in a boat, I think somewhere in Italy, and, and drowned I think in a lake. He went boating. Um, and of course, obviously, um, probably more people know Shelley as the significant author of the, of a, of his much more famous spouse, Mary Shelley, who wrote some book, uh, that, uh, did quite well for itself and seems to have a massive resonance in the century that followed her writing of that book. And she wrote that book when she was 1920 as well. She wrote Frankenstein when she was 1920, just in case you're feeling insecure about anything intellectually in your life. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was 1920. Um, so that's enough background for Shelley. Horace Smith, on the other hand, was a friend of Shelley's. He was a friend of the romantic poets. And he wrote himself. He, he wrote poetry. He, uh, I think he wrote plays. He might have even written novels as well. I don't know enough about the dude. I hardly know anything. I just skimmed his Wikipedia this morning and I apologise for that. Um, the rigour is not... The academic rigour is not really going to happen in this episode, I'm afraid. So Horace Smith... But maybe, mainly the one thing that Horace Smith characterises the man knew how to make a buck. So unlike all these romantic poets who fell in and out of favour and some of them who died, well, three, at least three of them who died young, um, he, he didn't. He, he, he lived a, a good life where he made a good bit of money and he was, by all accounts, a good writer, a good poet. And I think this poem we're going to read is a good poem. But um, we're going to ask the question, why, why when we have these two, ver two poems about the same thing, Ozymandias, why is one poem more revered than the other? Is it simply because maybe... Shelley, Shelley wrote one of them <laughs> and Shelley it's, has that figure, he has that mystique, whereas maybe Horace Smith doesn't. Or is there so, something about Shelley's poem as well that really hits the, hits the, hits the nerve in which Horace Smith's poem, which is a very good poem, um, simply doesn't. So I'm going to read both poems. Um, the background of both poems is that now I used to tell this story wrong, right? Um, it's based on the bust of Ramesses II, which is on display um, in the British Museum. 
as we speak right now. Now, around the time these poems were written, it had been acquired. I love this term, acquired. We all know what acquired meant in Victorian times, but it was just chiseled off the, you know, chiseled off some off its rightful place and um, dragged to be put in a museum of England as we just, as, as the British empire went around looting the world of its treasures and claiming it as their own. So um, there's of course a lot of argument about that people, the, the Elgin marbles perhaps being the most famous example and the argument being some people saying, come on, we need to give these back to Greece because it's their treasure. It's their national treasure. They, they deserve it. They have a right to it. And then other people saying, no, but these have been preserved because of their place in the British Museum and they might not have been preserved as well if the British Museum had not taken them. I mean, isn't that itself sort of not really preserving? Take sort of, you know, getting a big old chisel and sort of taking something away from its actual place isn't really preserving something. It might be the Victorian idea of preserving something, a bit like how to be a Victorian naturalist you'd be walking through a, a jungle and you'd see a an exquisite bird of paradise and you would say oh my goodness look at that wonderful bird of paradise i do believe it is one of the only breeding pairs around we are so we are so blessed to be in its presence right now and now we must we must protect we must we must we must preserve it for the, the good of natural philosophy and natural science um Jeeves, hand me my blunderbuss, bang, and then they'd stuff it and put it in a museum. But so that that maybe just the mindset was different. What people thought would be preservation is now looting in today's in today's way of seeing things. So it had been acquired. Now I, I I get this wrong. I've got this wrong in the past because I've always sort of told a story that they both went to the British Museum together, Horace Smith, and. Uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and they just looked at this and they went oh let's write a sonnet let's have a sonnet writing contest about this and they wrote their sonnets and that, it, it didn't happen like that at all it didn't arrive um, it was 1818 when they wrote the poems it was acquired by them but it didn't actually arrive it took years to arrive so it arrived in the 1820s so these poems were long written and published by then so it's I think what it is is that they found out the news that it was coming and so they decided to have a little contest, which is what they did all the time. Um Keats House in Hampstead, it's meant to be a lot of romantic poets would have sonnet writing contests there in the drawing room of Keats House. Um it's called Keats House, right? Because Keats lived there for a while with Fanny Brown and her family before he went to Italy. But as as um some friends of mine who are resident poets um, who they they had sort of young poets do little residencies there at Keats House, which is fantastic because Keats, guess what, was a young poet. Um, but it found out it wasn't really. They call it Keats House as if it was Keats's house, but he he was quite literally dossing on the couch there. So, so it's named after him. The house is named after him, but really it was just the place where Keats was just like, oh, I ain't got nowhere to go. All right, just sleep on the couch here for a while, or sleep in the spare room. That's it. Could you imagine, like, if if any of you become famous for whatever? And some cow and some spare room that you dosed in for a little while when you were young becomes like a little museum. Could you imagine that? There's a house in Norfolk, I think I stayed in for about a week. The Niall O'Sullivan Museum in Norfolk. It has it has a ring to it. So they read about these poems in the newspaper or something like that, and they decided to have their little contest. And then the poems were both sort of separately published as well. So um so so there's sort of um, and they were published under different titles as well. Um, so Smith's poem, um, Shelley's poem was originally titled 
as um oh no no it was, it was called ozymandias but it's under the pen name glirastes and i'm reading this straight from the wikipedia page by the guys i by the way guys i'm keeping it classy this week i'm afraid it's a complete mess i know but what can you do so it was later republished under the title sonnet ozymandias in his 1819 collection rosalind and helen now smith's poem was published um along with a note signed with the initials hs on the 1st of february 1818 so it tells the same story now um it was originally published under the same title, but in eight later collections. Now, I, do, I wonder if this is because he felt slightly overshadowed by Shelley and he didn't want to be looking to be riding on his coattails or something. But it was later published in later collections with this title. Are you ready for this title? Because it really is something. It was titled On a Stupendous Leg of Granite Discovered Standing by Itself in the Deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. There's a weird noise in the background then, but I think I'm going to keep that in because it feels like the right reaction to that. So that that's the uh, that's the snappy title for a sonnet. I love it. I, I've got to say, I do love writing sonnets with stupid, long titles. I wrote a sonnet myself called um, On the Decision to Have Roger Moore Dress Up as a Clown for the Bomb Disposal Scene in Octopussy. That was, a, that was a title of a sonnet that I'm quite proud of, perhaps more proud of a title than I am of a sonnet. We're going to read these two out now, and we'll talk about perhaps what makes one better than the other or not. So here's Shelley's Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it sculptor well those passions red, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand stretch far away you know that poem you've heard it read badly by actors and now you've just heard it read badly by me i'm jumping straight into horace smith's ozymandias now i'm you, let's not let's respect the man's later decision now i'm going to read on a stupendous leg of granite discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below by Horace Smith. In Egypt's sandy silence all alone stands a gigantic leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, saith the stone, the king of kings, this mighty city shows the wonders of my hand. The city's gone nought but the leg remaining to disclose the sight of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder, and some hunter may express, wonder like ours when through the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment huge and stops to guess what wonderful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. So that was Horace Smith, which I'll refer to now as Leg of Granite. Leg of Granite by Horace Smith and Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. 
the similarities are very much apparent. Both talk about erect statue. And now, obviously, um, they must have had a collective agreement. I'm guessing. Oh, no, actually, no. Um, again, I, I, I defer to Wikipedia. Shelley and Smith both chose a passage from the writings of a Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus, which described a massive Egyptian statue and quoted its inscription, King of Kings Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. So, um, yeah. So, so, and it says in the poem that Diodorus is actually the traveller from an antique land. So, um, let's compare the poems. So, yes, those are the two, definitely the idea of like, that, that there was a shattered visage, the, the, the shattered statue, and then this exclamation of I am Ozymandias, King of Kings. See, I immediately refer to the um, this the, the, refer to to Shelley when when I describe it. So let's start with Horace Smith because I think you know Horace Smith. Firstly, the poem is written like quite um, a traditional sonnet in that sense. It has a rhyme scheme of A B B A, so starting off like a, an Italian sonnet. And then it goes um, B, <laughs> A, B, A after that. So it's, you know, it changes things around, but ultimately it's it's an Italian sonnet. And then uh, the next rhymes are sort of, sort of a sestet. So, you know, we have a distinctive octave and sestet as well. So eight lines followed by six lines traditionally in the sonnet. And there's a very distinctive turn in the poem as well. It really does turn bang at the end of the eighth line and at the beginning of the sixth line so there is a change of emphasis so and then the rhyme scheme is is c c um d e d e c c d e d e i mean again it's not completely adhering to the italian playing around with it a little bit as the romantics were known they were always kind of playing around a little bit with this they, they used the sun the, the traditional forms but they would also experiment with with ways of writing the forms as well at the same time and then um so so it, formally i think it's it's a much more traditional sonnet i think um smith's version whereas uh the rhyme scheme of ozymandias so um a b a b and then a again and then c then d then c again <laughs> then e then back to d kings and then e again and then f and then e and then f so the rhyme scheme's really dotting about all over the place i need to write it down actually but i can't i can't but but again it's a much more sort of convoluted i mean every line meets its rhyming other but they are much more sort of just strangely dispersed. I don't think there's, there's as much of a sort of mathematical, logical lo logic to the way the rhymes are dispersed across the poem. So so Shelley's reads like a poem that isn't rhyming as obviously, and the rhymes almost become little sort of ghostly echoes of each other because they aren't immediately following on from each other or they aren't as in, in as much of a discernible pattern. The rhymes are there so that they're sort of more unconscious, I think, in the flow of the poem when we read it. So the image, so it's, but again, if we think about imagery, um, the imagery is quite simple, really, in Horace Smith's Ozymandias. I think this is where we begin to sort of sense a difference between the poems. Um, 
you know, he describes the sandy silence of Egypt and, um, you know, the stone that says it, but the city's gone and the leg remains to disclose the site of it. So, yeah, we just get this idea of it. He pretty much describes the image. And then we have the turn and we're thinking and, we, and we, we're now looking at London, you know, this, the surprise reveal of it, of this place as London halfway in, into the third line. And then we wonder what race lived in this annihilated place. So it's pretty simple, isn't it? It says, here's this, here's this society. Look at the hubris of this leader. It all fell to ruin. Will someone look upon the, the marks of our society and think the same thing as we think when we look at Ozymandias's statue? It's all quite simple. Maybe that's the strength of Smith's poem. But if we look at Ozymandias again, so we've already kind of looked at a rhyme scheme, which is more simple and easy to follow in Smith's version, but much more kind of fragmented and thrown all about the gaff in Shelley's version of the poem. The imagery in Shelley's poem, I'm, I just think is absolutely masterful and divine. So, you know, because he starts off with a traveler from an antique land. OK, this is a speaker meeting a traveler. The interesting thing is we don't really think about the speaker more than that. The only relevance that the speaker plays in the whole poem is is literally they meet this traveller. Now we find out that the traveller is actually this historian. So he's actually reading a history and he's characterising reading a history as meeting a traveller from an antique land. So reading the history of this writer is like the two writers actually meeting. And then even the traveller from the antique land. So we have two people, the speaker and the traveller from the antique land in the first line. And then who said? That's it. We have no more need for either of these characters. They are cast aside because now we get onto the idea of the two trunkless legs of stone. So we've sort of started off from the present. And then if we think of um, Theodorus as, as the inspiration, we're going already into the past in the first line with this meeting of the traveller, his writing. And then we're into this other place, two vast and trunkless legs of stone. So it's like a third hand account um, immediately beginning the poem. Stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half shrunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it's sculptor well these passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. So yes, now we're describing the sculpture, but it's almost like this zoom effect, isn't it? We start with the speaker, then the person that they met. Now we have this sculpture, but now we're actually seeing through the sculpture to the two human beings, another two human beings. We begin with a pair of human beings, which is the um, person telling the, the tale and the person who's encountered the person telling the tale, the poet and the person that the poet was reading or the person that inspired the poet. And now we're looking at another two people and that is the, the tyrant himself, Ozymandias, and the sculptor and you know the artist who rendered this statue as well. And then we get this line. So... Um, tell that it's sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed As this is a line that trips a lot of people up especially when they read it so um there's a video of ben kingsley reading out ozymandias with some very sort of bomb 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 music in the background and like a lot of actors um they don't always come to a full understanding of the poem before they read it out they know that they can kind of wing it with their masterful acting voice and the gravity that they can lend to it but people trip up on that line the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed because what does that mean um well it refers to the features so which yet survived you know the, these passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things so it's the passions 
um, which yet survived, stamped on these lysis things. So the hand that mocked them, there's a hand that mocked for passions and a heart that fed the passions. So when we ask the question of which hand mocked the passions and which hand fed the passions, then we get the idea, don't we? We get the idea that, okay, the, the hand that mocked them is the sculptor because he's allowing these passions to be seen in the sculptor. Um, and then there's the, uh, the, the the tyrant who obviously has the heart that feeds these passions and he's blind to how ridiculous he looks in the sculpture. We know this about tyrants anyway. When we look at Saddam Hussein, um, when we look at um, when we look at Colonel Gaddafi with his weird sort of like, mid, you know, 80s, early 80s sort of hip hop military uniforms, um, they're, they're kind of one part Mussolini, one part Grandmaster Flash. So they look ridiculous, but there's no one around to tell them they look ridiculous. And even when an artist sort of makes a sculpture of them looking ridiculous, they don't care. They go, oh, I look great, don't I? I wonder if there's anyone else in the public eye who kind of looks ridiculous, who, um, who, who, yeah, exactly, exactly, who perhaps doesn't understand that you know so normally when a dictator looks ridiculous um they they you know their orange face or whatever that that might characterize their their comb over wig or whatever it is and their ridiculousness um whoever that might be i i, I name no names but they're ridiculous we we shouldn't shame people too much for their physical appearance but it's more of a, a dictator's strange physical appearance in how they dress or whatever is normally a sign that they've surrounded themselves with yes people and no one will critique them. They will say, you do look a bit strange coming out. Maybe you want to try a different image. No one's going to say that because they're a dictator. They have absolute power and they don't want to hear any dissent. So that's normally a symptom of it. So I can imagine this with a sculptor here. So finally on the pedestal, these words appear. I am Ozymandias, king of kings. It's quite simple, the end of it. It is literally just contrasting this grand declaration from the tyrant and then the lone and level sand stretch far away around the colossal wreck at the end of the poem. I think so we can hold a few things here with Shelley. Shelley was perhaps a bit more just I think Horace Smith overspells the things a little bit, doesn't he? He overstates it a little bit. Um, the first line exact as well from Horace Smith in, in Egypt's sandy silence all alone. It's not exactly the same as I met a traveller from an antique land. You know, the, the way each poem begins, you can see Shelley's as a much stronger beginning. So I think that's what it is. I think the effect that Shelley has of just this amazing zooming in technique where we're in the space of a few lines. We go from meeting a person to that person talking about a wrecked sculpture. And then we kind of keep zooming through to the two actual living people, the tyrant themselves and the sculptor that made the sculpture of his tyrant. And then there's this kind of zoom out again from the wrecked sculpture and the, and the lone and level wastes, um, the sands, the lone and level sands even stretch far away. So we in our modern time as well, in our visual culture, I think we get a lot more from that poem just because of the way that it travels through the images and travels through the characters and travels back out again compared to Horace Smith's, which is perhaps a bit more static in its setting. We have two distinct settings and they're contrasted with each other and that's it. So yes, I, I think, I think these are many reasons why we see, I mean, it's just interesting to see why we perhaps value Ozymandias more than uh, Lego Granite by Smith. But I think it's all, you know, I've, I've bored you so much about my lack of belief in the 
in the objectivity of standards in art so i'm not going to go into that now but i will um i will always look at why one poem has captured the imagination more than the other and i think it is those contrasts it's the it's the strangeness of the rhyme scheme it's um i think the meter as well sort of shelley's a bit more playful with the meter and the way the imagery progresses in the poem and the way that the argument is perhaps a bit more subtly made than it is in Horace Smith's poem, so that the images really come forward and speak for themselves without much commentary upon them, is why perhaps this poem works as a way of taking a very compact form like the sonnet and saying so much through saying so little and saying a lot at the same time, if you know what I mean. I would conclude that is why many people find value, more value in, in Shelley's Ozymandias. But I will say one thing about Horace Smith's, which is that Shelley's Ozymandias is about the lone dictator and, you know, the, the, the wreck of his pride, the wreck of his hubris, which is fine. We still see that today. I mean, some of those dictators I spoke about, like, you know, uh, again, Saddam Hussein and Colonel Gaddafi had their very undignified ends, didn't they? Um, that were caught in terrible detail by media, one by a hidden phone camera during the execution of Saddam Hussein. And others, obviously, is everyone's using their phone camera to, to record the um, the humiliation and the brutal murder of Colonel Gaddafi. Not how brutal he was. It doesn't stop his own murder being, being his own execution, public execution being, being brutal. So um, I'm going to go off on one. I'm not sure what about, but before I go off on one, I'll just say one thing, which is, yes, Horace Smith's, but we look at the end of Horace Smith's, and I think in a way, we look at the environment, we look at the problems that we have today, and it's not necessarily about a sole dictator destroying the world. We've almost moved on the idea, or well, not that much, from the lone nutcase of the new nuclear codes who can just press a button and the world is annihilated. Um, we now, you know, the Doctor Strange love image of the person riding the bomb and going yee-haw as they, as, they, as they hit the ground. Now we have the image actually of all of us being culpable, you know, of the environment, the just so many things that, that we are actually doing to destroy ourselves. And it, that's the interesting thing, I think, which is that the end of Horace Smith's poem ends with just a person wondering about the people that lived there. What race? you know, lived in this annihilated place. Whereas Shelley's Ozymandias is about the individual. And I think that's one thing that actually, could I say, makes Horace's poem a bit more relevant for today because we're all playing a role, aren't we? We're all playing a role in inequality. Well, those of us who live, you know, in a more privileged setting, um, we're, we're all playing a role in pollution. And, you know, the things that probably will, you know, and, and environments and things that probably will eventually destroy our society. I'm going to go off on one now, probably about something really pessimistic. This is Ric Flair. I'm going to wander off on one anyway. So let's ask Ric Flair to make his special noise. There we go. That's Ric Flair going woo, which means we're going to wander off on one. I have five minutes left to wander off on one. So what am I going to wander off on one about? I'm going to wander off on one about... um I don't know what I'm going to wander off on one about. I, I think I could just carry on talking about the annihilation of the human race and the role that we play about it. I, I don't think I have much to say about it. It's um, it's really interesting to be living in a time where 
the zeitgeist is finally changing after about 30 years of awareness, at least 30 years of awareness about a lot of these issues. Um, but it's amazing how people are still sort of caught in a mindset of, of not really seeing it. Um, so I don't know what to say, really. I don't know what to say about it because it's so depressing. Um, how can we feel hopeful? What can we feel hopeful about? What can we change? This is the biggest question and I don't have the answer to it. Um, I do wonder, I think I've spoken before about what would, what would a future society look on us? If it, what would they judge us for in the same way that we judge the Victorians? So there I am talking about the Victorians looting, looting places and, um, and, and taking it back and shooting these animals and getting them stuffed to, you know, these animals that are now extinct. So what would, and of course the thing that we're going to be judged for is our consumption, our waste and the damage that we've done to the planet. I, I think that, and, and our moral, but, but how we have a kind of, we do it all with a sense of moral superiority. I've spoken about this before. So I know, I know I've trodden on this, this path already. Um, I think the only way to get out of this is, is, to um i'm sorry if i've said this already my my theory is this this is all linked up to capitalism and it's all linked up to consumption and we just have to get rid of the idea that fetishization of growth is one thing we have to get rid of we have to prepare ourselves to live in for degrowth not a crash but degrowth we have to kind of shrink the growth i'm i'm not a political heavyweight here you can tell but we have to uh, fund it by taxing really, really, really rich people and making them become satisfied with being millionaires instead of billionaires. And we have to just find a way to enter a degrowth mindset and to perhaps, I don't know, share more stuff and not need to buy new stuff all the time. Because I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have behind our, you know, just our, that, that it's the growth mindset that ultimately fuels this. And I don't think, I've, and you know, the growth has its own economic problems anyway, which is leading to crashes, that the needing to kind of cause growth to wean and scrape value endlessly. It's like the economic perpetual motion machine. Um, it's just not possible. So we have to sort of see the crunch as part of part of the way things are as well as the growth. And we should actually see the crunch. So, you know, as I'm not saying in state communism right away, I'm just saying tax the rich a bit more to help ease the burden. But to really live with the reality that, you know what, growth can be damaging. Maybe growth can be good in the short term, but that growth should be used to fund degrowth that happens afterwards. Oh my God, that is the rubbish, most rubbish going off on one I've ever done, wandering off on one ever I've ever done. Um, yeah, and the whole podcast was a bit sort of ad hoc this week. So I apologize for that if I've not reached the normal standards of it. It's just been a really busy week for me. But I still enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. We'll do a bit more justice to Shelley, I think, in a future episode. I think that's all. That's it for Horace Smith, people. I'm sorry about that. Unless I find some amazing Horace Smith poem that I haven't read in the future. Maybe we'll... We'll look at Horace Smith. Um, but I'm going to leave it like that for now because an alarm's about to go off on my phone. So if you, to everyone, by the way, we hit a thousand listens on SoundCloud. SoundCloud, they tell me that they measure it by people pressing the button on the player. That's literally, that's, that's what's measured by it. Oh, that's my alarm, see? It's a really chilled out alarm on my 
wasteful electronic device that I will have to hold on to for another year, perhaps, before I buy another one, because that would be good for the environment. Um, so a thousand people, a thousand listens. I don't know if that includes SoundCloud. I don't know if that includes iTunes or just sort of RSS Android downloads. But as far as SoundCloud is concerned, by their own criteria, Rusty Sonnets has had a thousand listens. Isn't that amazing? Thank you especially to all of you that listen to it thank you to everyone that has shared it i know other podcasts like get that in like a day for one episode but it felt really special for me getting that so thank you to everyone that has shared it thank you to everyone that has told other people about it if you want to carry on doing it that would be great if you want to leave a nice review on itunes that will really help it as well um, i promise to be more prepared next week because the deadlines are pretty much this weekend the deadlines i'm dealing with um, but i hope you enjoyed it anyway i enjoyed it it was a bit ramshackle this week, but um, but I enjoyed doing it. Um, I always enjoyed speaking to you guys, and I hope you enjoy listening to me. Take care of yourselves. Have a good week. Bye-bye. <laughs>